0: Whether you're a first-time poultry owner or looking to expand your flock, you can always use some helpful advice. Blaine's Farm and Fleet's got you covered with great info and products to help raise healthy birds in-store or online at farmandfleet.com forward slash chickdays. Welcome to Fishers and Farmers, Neighbor to Neighbor. I'm Pam Yankee. This program is focused in on unique watershed projects and collaborations happening all around the upper Midwest. Today, we are focused in on the power that women have in these conservation efforts. Land and learning circles are popping up all across the upper Midwest, targeting women non-operating landowners. More on that in just a moment. Fishers and Farmers Neighbor to Neighbor is brought to you courtesy of Fishers and Farmers, online at fishersandfarmers.org and by our partnership with Saddle Butte Ag, also online at saddlebutte.com. Here's some numbers that may surprise you. Did you know more than 30% of farmland in Upper Mississippi River Basin states is rented? Total leased farmland exceeds 40% in Minnesota and 50% in Iowa and Illinois. Of approximately 40% of farmland rented nationwide, 87 million acres are owned by women that do not farm the land but are still engaged in how that land is treated, conservation practices that are put in place. That's what I learned when I talked to Gabrielle McNally. She is the Women for the Land Director at American Farmland Trust, and they're working very hard to get a handle on those farmland women owners that aren't operating their land and what information they may lack when it comes to staying engaged in conservation projects. American Farmland Trust did an in-depth survey of the industry to try to find out more. I talked with Gabrielle about what they learned.
1: The the recognition of women in this space is growing. I will I always love to do a shout out to Women Food and Agricultural Network which many folks in your Midwest audience are are likely to know that really you know, over a decade ago, um, a number of folks from WFAN and from AFT, um, you know, collaboratively worked on sort of building out the learning circles. Folks like Gene Eales, who worked with WFAN and others, really were kind of at the forefront of creating these learning circles um, to reach out to women non-operating landowners predominantly because we knew that they weren't accessing resources at the same scale as male farmers or male landowners um, and recognize that their needs were different um, when it came to sort of accessing resources, especially around kind of conservation and soil health and um, adopting practices that we know are beneficial for the land. So I always have to give a shout out to that history that really kind of laid the foundation for us in coming a national initiative. Um, really, which kind of was instigated by my hire um, nearly two years ago.
0: You know, the thing I notice when I see these kinds of groups coming together is they're really happy to learn from others and not have to repeat the same mistakes. Tell me a little bit more about the survey that American Farmland Trust did to get a better grasp on the audience, on their individual uh, issues, needs, and an underlying factor that isn't always discussed is sometimes just the intimidation of the space the intimidation of the agencies, organizations, associations that they'd normally need to try to integrate with, and even just the the intimidation of, like you said, recognizing how powerful they are as individuals.
1: Yeah, no, all great points. Well, so um, in terms of the survey we conducted, I was lucky enough, kind of, uh, when I joined, um, I was following on the footsteps of um, Jennifer Filipiak, who was um, working in the Midwest to advance Women for the Land and kind of growing it into a national initiative prior to my hire, and um, Dr. Peg who's at who was at Utah State, and um, they initiated this non-operating landowner survey to really better understand who this audience is and how they could be partners in conservation. We hear so often that um, rented lands are, not, um, are, are kind of a failure when it comes to conservation, and, and certainly we see kind of nationally a trend of less conservation adoption, like things like cover crops or no-till, um, on rented land, but there's been a lot of kind of um, navel-gazing, and some of it is research-based, but, you know, kind of saying that we we can't achieve conservation goals on rented lands, and I would say what our research, we developed this very robust survey. It was administered by partners at Iowa State with the leadership from uh, Dr. Petra Zelka at Utah State, and we really wanted to understand who are these non-operating landowners. Now, we did survey both men and women Knows so some of our findings are kind of much broader than just women, but we also were really interested in women in particular and if their needs or interests or proclivity toward conservation was different than their male counterparts. What I think is really interesting, there's so much kind of meat in terms of what we found in our survey. A couple of things that i love to highlight are just that we really found that this sort of narrative that people who own land but rent it out only care about the financial bottom line, what we learned was that that wasn't the case, and it's certainly not the case for women landowners. Um, in particular, but true for both men and women, Knolls. And so I think that's really powerful that people are holding on to farmland because of their family legacy, the history, and they care about the future of that land and want to see it stewarded in the right way. Often, you know, these Knolls act lack access or awareness of resources, and we found that women in particular. Especially coupled with women who don't have as much farm experience, which is you know more typical where women might have been raised in a farming family, but they weren't on the out on the tractor with grandpa or dad, right they we've kind of gendered these these roles and responsibilities. so uh, women have often lacked less of that direct experience and have you know sort of um had less access to resources that would support conservation decision making. and then to your point, you know so our our research really kind of Highlighted that you know these knolls and women in particular kind of lack some access and awareness of resources that would help them be at least help them access resources to improve conservation on their rented lands in partnership with their farmers. But but my work, but also work of folks like Dr. Angela Carter at Michigan Tech and Jean Eels, who I mentioned before, um, who runs her own consulting firm now, who, and Betty Wells at Iowa State. A number of researchers have written about. Um, kind of how women, um, especially these NOLs, have kind of tried to interact with mainstream ag organizations or their farmer renters who have tended to be male and have faced either kind of direct discrimination or have just felt like their voice, their perspective is not respected or heard. And they're not seen as sort of like the legitimate um, decision makers because perhaps they don't have the same language about the NRCS programs or the USDA resources or may not have, you know, had as much kind of information about um, agronomy and agriculture as, um, as others. So kind of a big part of our work has been to kind of help to give women the resources, the information, the access to technical service providers, um, understanding the USDA programs for conservation, um, access to a support network of other women so that they're able to kind of cultivate their own power and voice and be more involved in the decision-making in spaces that have felt very male-dominated and not for them. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of our, our survey work has really kind of affirmed some of that, and then there's been other good scholarship in this space to help us understand that that women, in particular women knolls, need some of their own direct programmatic outreach and engagement to get them in the door to adopt conservation programs or fill out a conservation plan, um, and that it's critically important that we include them because they, they seem willing imp- willing partners in this work that may need some additional resources.
0: Yeah. So do you feel like that we're making headway? I mean, I love the, the kind of concise survey look, but obviously uh, for groups that have been working do they give you the sense that they feel like they are gaining momentum? Are they, they're breaking through those barriers, Gabrielle?
1: Mm. That's a great question, you know, and I think that it's, you know, what my experience is, yes, for the folks who are accessing resources. So I can speak for like our programmatic interventions, the research that we've done um, has illustrates that women are taking action after accessing Financial technical resources. After building a network of connection with other women, technical service providers, and other women farmers or landowners, they're more confident and willing to take some kind of action. Whether that's putting cover crops on their land or going in to talk to someone from um, someone from the USDA or the Soil Water Conservation District. So I think that we are seeing the kind of programmatic. I do have some, like, bigger picture questions, you know, at, like, a national scale, right? How do we see this sort of trend changing and and really improving kind of equity, or a term we like to use a lot here is, like, parity of resource allocation to women. And I think when we look at, I've looked at some data from just, say, NRCS programs, we still see that women um, are kind of underrepresented in the number of kind of conservation contracts that go out for a whole slew of programs even as it relates to, like, the the percentage that they make up in, in agriculture. So I think I still think at a national scale, depending on how we kind of look at this, we still have work to do to to make sure that women are accessing resources equitably. But I would also say that I think it really depends on who we're talking about, too, especially when we look at women who have more diverse racial and ethnic identities, their access of resources, you know, from from other um you know, both state and federal resources is still less so. Um, and so we still have work to do. So I'd say yes, as programmatically, when we're able to engage people and connect them, we are able to move the needle and see positive changes, not just for the women we reach, but the technical service providers that we work with who cultivate their own skills and confidence in reaching women, um, women non-operating landowners. Like, we've seen this change happen in parts of the country that we've worked in, parts of work that Women, Food and Ag Network have done. Now, Feds it's Forever and other other organizations are taking the charge and doing more of this directed programmatic outreach with women so we know it's effective. I still have questions about kind of like, we still maybe need to move the needle further at a national scale to make sure that resources are equ- equitably distributed, and that it is so kind of across diverse gender and racial ethnic lines.
0: That's Gabrielle Resh mcnally Before she joined American Farmland Trust, Gabrielle was a fellow with the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Northwest Climate Hub, where she did research trying to understand producer decision-making in sustainable agri-food systems. That's why her passion for finding out more about these women landowners runs deep. In a moment, we'll focus in on -on boots-on-the-ground learning happening in Livingston County, Illinois, where Becky Taylor is leading the effort as conservation technician for the Livingston County Soil and Water Conservation District. Her story coming up in just a moment. Now it's time to catch up with our friend T.J. Cardis from Saddle Butte Ag, one of the partners bringing you Fishers and Farmers, Neighbor to Neighbor. You know, T.J., we're getting a lot of people now taking another look at cover crops as a part of their conservation plan. USDA's Risk Management Agency just recently announced that they were going to give uh, some premium support for those conservation cover crop acres, and you want to remind people if you're thinking about cover crops, now is the time to be talking about your seed needs.
2: That, and that's great. Talking about planting. I, I love this steering into this, Pam, because we, we talk about this a lot. You know, you buy your corn and soybeans in November to February is, is our selling season for corn and soybeans in the Midwest. And then you call me uh, August 25th and say, I have this equipped contractor. I got this government contract and I have to have something done by September 15th once the plane's showing up. Not much planning. So when you talk about planning, the earlier the better. And that way we can have these conversations. And hopefully somebody can get on your farm and look at what's going on. So the earlier the better. I love the idea of tying this into your crop production system. So you go see your corn and soybean dealers. And you buy your corn, say, in December and your soybeans in December. And then you give us a call. So we're not offering these big cash discounts yet like the bigger seed companies are. But we are entertaining some ideas on how to make a discount system work for early prepays or for early orders like this. We are working on that as a company. Because the earlier we know if something's gonna happen, the earlier we can move stuff. And trucking is going to be a big, big issue on movement. But I would love to have plant A, B, and C done with you guys with our growers from January to the middle of March. Because the other part is we get guys that wanted a frost seed. You know, like this year the snow left early and we had a bunch of frost seed happen the end of March, first of April. Also, the phone call was, hey, where's my seed? I could frost seed today. Uh, well, it's in Bloom Prairie, and you're in central Wisconsin. So guess what? It's three and a half, four hours away. If I'd have known a week earlier, it would have been sitting at your doorstep. We did a lot of running this spring to move seed around that way, which is fine. That's part of the seed business. I've been a seed dealer. I'm 52 years old, so I'll give my age. I took my first dealership when I was 21, selling corn and soybeans. I've done this for a long time. So I know guys make rash decisions based off weather because that's what affects us is weather and timing. But corn and soybeans, you plan your year out fairly early. If you're doing that, you need to plan out your cover crop because if you started something this summer, you got to plan, okay, here's what's going to happen in the fall. Here's what's going to happen next spring. Here's the varieties I'm going to look at working within the system. And the corn and bean companies are really looking at tying into our systems on, okay, what benefits are we going to get out of this and what hybrids should we place in these areas? So we talk about working as a team. I'll say the cover crops. You have a corn and soybean supplier. Let's sit down with them and talk about varieties, talk about hybrids, talk about things that are going to work in the situation. If you're a forage guy, let's talk about how to make forage. Maybe you take a cereal rye cutting and go to a corn silage. You might move your corn silage hybrid time frame a little bit because of that. But that all takes planning. Like, like we were talking earlier, Pam, the, the conversations I get or the calls I get saying, I got this contract. I need to have it done in two days. Where's the plane? Well, he's 100 miles away flying over here. Where's that high cedar? Well, he's 50 miles that way. Huh, what am I going to do? Well, here's plan A. We can use four species up to this point. After that, we're down to using three species. But we could still get it done for you. It's just going to be a little different situation. So earlier planning really is critical in this business because corn and soybeans are that way. Forty years ago, guys came in in March and April and bought their corn. They don't do that anymore. They're planning their years out. They're looking at markets. They're looking at plans. They're looking at herbicides, fertilization. This is the same program. This is an agronomy system. Cover crops are a technology, and you need to plan with your technology.
0: I'll tell you, TJ, if knowledge is power, you're one of the most powerful guys In the cover crop industry, thank you. T.J. Curtis from Saddle Butte Ag, our partner, bringing you fishers and farmers, neighbor to neighbor. Don't forget, find all their products and how you can contact T.J. and the rest of the Saddle Butte staff on their website, saddlebutte.com. And now back to our conversation today about women for the land and learning circles popping up all around the Upper Midwest to engage the women non-operating landowners. One project that's moving forward is in Livingston County, Illinois. That's where Becky Taylor is the Livingston County Soil and Water Conservation District's Conservation Technician. And she takes it seriously trying to get these non-operating landowners, particularly females, engaged in the process and explain to me what they've found success with. We find,
3: and especially I will say in our county, our county is very heavy on rented land. So our state average, I think, is around 60% of the farmland is rented to somebody else. Our county is 70 to 75%. Um, And a lot of those are going to be women landowners. And, the issue comes in not somebody who maybe um, grew up farming the land themselves. They maybe, maybe it was their husband. Maybe it was their father. So they never had much to do with the ground other than, you know, with old gender roles, taking the food to the field for the men. Um, so now they have to make decisions on that ground, and some of them feel very out of their element when it comes to that.
0: You know, and you're with one of the areas that they should become most familiar with, Livingston County Soil and Water Conservation District. What is it about those acronyms, FSA, NRCS? What is it about those acronyms that seem to have women landowners kind of shying away?
3: Well, I think it's more they don't know what they mean. And I know when we do our women landowner programs, a lot of times we give them a sheet that says, SWCD is soil and water con You know, we we call it the alphabet soup sheet. So we give them all these acronyms and explain what they are. Um, and to tell you the truth, it's not just women that sometimes have a problem with those acronyms. <laughs> um, so, but and I think for a lot of those women, they just don't feel comfortable because, like I said, this is not something they've grown up doing or growing up dealing with. So it's brand new for them, and then they have to learn all these different acronyms and all these different programs, and it can be overwhelming.
0: Tell me a little bit about these learning circles that have uh, really been gaining you audience, uh, gaining education for the women landowners.
3: Yeah, so we've tried to do at least one of the learning women landowner conservation learning circles a year. Um, Usually we try to do them in person. This year we did do one virtually virtually. and actually that was quite interesting because we were able to bring in people that own land in the county but don't live in the area, don't even live in the state. But they were able to join because of that. Um, They've been very helpful for the women, I think. Everyone seems to enjoy them. Each one has a little bit different topic. Um, This year we focused on erosion and watersheds. Last year we looked at pollinators and wildlife habitat. We've done soil health. That is a big one we try to do quite often. We've also done um, learning circles on rental leases, you know, so they can figure out ways they could maybe get conservation practices into their leases with their tenants. So it's just we try to bring in topics that are relevant for them right now, but also to where they can learn and meet other women who are in the same position. So they have a like a support group as well.
0: Tell me what those first meetings are kind of like. Well, first, it, for like a new person, this is, you know, a place
3: where they can ask those questions. They may feel uncomfortable asking to their tenant or to, you know, somebody in an office setting. You know, sometimes these women think, well, this, te- this question is stupid. I should know this. Well, no, if you've never learned it before, you're not going to know it. Um. So there's that, and then we do try to give them those tools so that they can start one of the actually one of the best uh, things I give out to women landowners is actually something from n r c s the natural resources conservation service and it's five questions to ask your land, land your uh, your farmer mm-hmm. and it's a wonderful you know and it's talking mostly about soil health type of uh you know it's like have you considered cover crops have you considered different tillage options you know things like that and it gives them background on why this is an important question
0: what other what other items do you notice on that list uh becky because i'm curious 10 questions is more than i can come up with right away well it's 5 it's 5 questions um but and we do have
3: one lady who's been to multiple ones and she says my land my farmer um limits me to three questions at a time <laughs> I don't have that paper right in front of me, so I don't remember what all is on it. But yeah, I know there's stuff on, you know, cover crops, tillage, um, things like that.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah,
3: and that is something. If anybody, you could find it on the um, NRCS, the National Resources Conservation Service online. You can find that if anybody would be interested.
0: Tell me about the obstacles that you come against when when you get these women together. Like we said, varying knowledge background when it comes to production agriculture or how that land may be used it is a asset It is a resource that they have and do have command over but i've got to believe that the closer you get to the metropolitan area perhaps the less really they understand or know about these cycles how do you overcome that becky
3: mainly we overcome anything like that just by the program we try to put on um you know, so if we're putting on a soil health program, one of our one of the best visuals that I have is I do have a uh, tabletop rainfall simulator to where I can show them, hey, this is your land with no cover on it, completely tilled, a conventional program. Here's one that has cover crops and no till, and so they can visually see the difference in how much soil they're losing, how much water is not getting to their crops. Um, so I think... Basically, we get over it just with the information we try to provide them. We usually try to have, like, I'm there. If we have a female NRCS employee, we try to have them there. Um, we work with American Farmland Trust, um, so sometimes there will be people there from from that organization as well. So we just try to give them, you know, people they can go to afterwards even if they have questions, uh, and then we have all kinds of handouts that we give them to give them more of that information.
0: You know, and the other thing I want people to understand, just because these women may have been absent previously doesn't mean that they didn't care about the resources. Are you sensing that when you get them together?
3: Yes, definitely. They care about their land. A lot of it, I think, is a a generational issue because farming practices, I know, have changed just from the time I can remember when my dad farmed in the 80s. Farming practices have changed so much just in that, you know, 30 years, 40 years. And some of these ladies are like my parents' age or older. And for them to have gone back to, you know, they remember when dad had to get out the moldboard plow and you wanted to see all black dirt and you didn't want, you know, it's a very generational. That's what they thought was, what was supposed to be done. And farming practices have changed and they're still, well, this is how it was always done before.
0: Ah, the education continues, but so does overcoming the stigma of being a female owning farmland when you're not operating it. Boots on the ground learning from Becky Taylor. She is the conservation technician in Livingston County, Illinois, with the Soil and Water Conservation District. They have a very active Facebook page. If you'd like to find out what's going on there, just go to Facebook and look for Livingston County Soil and Water Conservation District. That'll do it for this edition of Fishers and Farmers Neighbor to Neighbor. For more programs just like this, please check out fishersandfarmers.org. Until next time, I'm Pam Yonke.